Well, we're in Exodus chapter 3. Look at these servants of the Lord. God bless you two men. Thank you. Exodus chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Let's pray as we get into the text this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and, and God, I just, I just pray that you'd settle our hearts, Lord, and, and even circumstances like this that I've had, settle my heart, Lord God. I know you've got some, some things that you want to teach us about yourself. I know that you have some things that, that you want to show us about ourselves, God, that you, you always do that. We never come to your word and, and leave lacking, God. We always come gaining something. You impart your truth, your living and active truth into our hearts. You impart seed, good seed that is able to grow and bear fruit into our lives. And so God, that's what we want. And this chapter is so rich with who you are. We get your name in this chapter. We get, we get incredible answers to, to some questionable questions, but God, incredible answers nonetheless. And so Father, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you come and settle upon each and every heart this morning, God. Still our minds and our thoughts of what, what we're going to do for lunch or what we need to take care of later today or even into the week, God, just bring a stillness to this place that really has people eager to hear and to listen what your word would speak to all of us. God, reveal yourself. We want to grow in the wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of who you are. So come be the teacher. Anoint my lips to preach your word in a way that is faithful, honorable, accurate, and true. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Acts, or I'm sorry, Acts, Exodus chapter 3 is where we're at this morning. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. And we're, we left off last week. Remember, it's, it's at this like kind of crux. It, w- it was kind of a cliffhanger last week because in Exodus chapter 3, we, we start seeing God reveal himself to Moses. We started talking about last week that, that God calls Moses by name twice. One of those people that God says, Moses, Moses. He calls him by name twice to try and get his attention. And then God reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush. And then we talked last week that he commissions Moses. He tells Moses, out of my great love for my people, out of the consistency of my character, and when I make promises, they come to pass. I want to do something. I want to come to the aid of my people. I see them. I know them. I hear what's going on with them. And I'm ready to deliver them. And we talked about all that last week. It kind of sets up to the point where Moses is sitting there, probably hiding his face, and he's saying, Lord, all that's fantastic. Lord, great, great idea, Lord. You're full of great ideas. And maybe he's thinking, God, are you wanting my blessing to do this? Is that why you're telling me? Because if you want my blessing, Lord, you have it. And the emphasis is, I want you to do it. Lord, go do it. But we kind of get this idea that Moses is thinking, but what does this have to do with me? Right? And I pictured this moment of silence there, that awkward moment of silence when you're kind of like, you should be getting it, but you're not getting it. And God's like, is he going to get it? Is he not going to get it? No, I actually have to directly tell him. Moses, this has everything to do with you. Because you're going to be the instrument of deliverance that I'm going to use. I'm sending you, Moses, back to Egypt. You're going to go talk to Pharaoh. You're going to be the person I'm going to use to deliver my people out of bondage in Egypt. And that's kind of where we left off last week, awaiting Moses' response. What does Moses think about all of this? How does Moses feel about all of this? And that's where we get our title this morning. Moses is going to respond in a beautiful reluctance Kind of, right? That's why there's a question mark here. It's, it's mostly beautiful. It's definitely re- reluctance. And then it's kind of okay. 
And what I mean by that, is, and we're going to break these down, we're going to see the, the Q&A Moses is going to have with God. He's going to ask five questions, God is going to give five answers, but at the beginning, we're going to see there's, there's absolute beauty in the reluctance. We're going to see Moses is, is going to show that he's no longer this self-reliant, self-confident, self-sufficient man. He doesn't hear God say, Moses, I want to send you to Egypt. And, and Moses doesn't say, absolutely, Lord, finally. I've been the right fit for this um, my whole life. What took you so long, right? That's the self-confident, prideful attitude that he had 40 years earlier. But God has purged that out of him. So he's no longer that man. And so there is a beautiful reluctance. I, I love that. I think we should all have that. When God calls us to do a work of His, it by definition needs the Lord to be able to accomplish the work. If we can do it, you know what we call that? A work of ours, right? It's not God's work. If we can do it in our own strength, it's not God's work, it's our work. So by design, anything God is calling us to do, it requires us to be dependent upon the strength and supply of the Spirit to be able to accomplish it. And Moses is aware of that. So there's beauty in this reluctance. But by the end of this Q&A, we're going to see that Moses is actually going to ask some questions that lead to kindling the anger of the Lord. And that's not good, right? That's not good. And so what we're doing is we're trying to see this progression and splitting some hairs and saying reluctance is beautiful. Disobedience is not. Disobedience is never beautiful to the Lord. Disobedience is never what we want to respond to the Lord. And Moses is going to very, he's going to approach that edge and flirt with crossing it before we're finished. So keep that in mind. We're looking at this beautiful reluctance, kind of, as we go through this Q&A, Moses is going to, to share with the Lord or, or how Moses is going to respond to the commission that God just gave him. So chapter 3, verse 11 says, But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Egypt out of Egypt. So God said, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses responds to this question and he's formulating it all around this first thing he says, God, who am I? Question number one is, who am I? And remember, Moses is talking to the Lord in the burning bush, right? The, the presence of God is upon this bush, burning brightly, warmly, but not consuming, like we talked about last week. So he says, hey, who am I? And again, I love this, this aspect because he's kind of saying, am I understanding you right? You want me to go to Egypt? You want me, this guy, this nobody, this shepherd that's been out here shepherding my father-in-law sheep for the past 40 years in the backside of the desert? I'm a nobody. You want me? Who am I to do this? And before we start seeing what God answers, does anybody else feel that way sometimes? Have you ever felt that way? Like, who am I? Not only, like, who am I to be loved by the creator of the universe? Who am I that God would so indwell with his spirit? Who am I to be raised up in a ministry or to be used to be served the Lord? Who am I, right? Sometimes I think, I am a nobody, and I'm a nobody that's continually made a mess of everything. Who am I? And it's, it's a beautiful question. There's absolute beauty in the, in the question because the answer is going to be, you're right. You are a nobody. I am a nobody. 
There is no qualifying answer we can give to say, God, so check me out, I've arrived. The, the answer is, Moses, you're right, you are a nobody, but you know what? I am a somebody. I am the Lord God of all creation. I created you, and I can use you mightily if you trust me, if you put your faith and trust and hope in me. And so there's this beautiful part here where even when we feel this way, the answer of the question is even more important. Moses is saying, who am I? And God is going to say this. He says, he says in verse 12, he says, so he said, I will certainly be with you. This is God promising his presence to Moses. Moses, who you are is not what is most important. Who you are and who you are not is not what is most important in this situation. It's who I am and I will be with you. This is the promise of God's presence. I love that when we think about whatever God is calling us to do, wherever God is calling us to go, if he calls us, he says, I will send my presence before you. I will be with you. This is the same promise that you and I can cling to. This is a promise that the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you until the ends of the age. I will go with you. But what it is, is God saying, I am promising my abiding presence with you, but the question still remains, will you abide with me? And what's beautiful about Moses is by the time we get to Exodus chapter 33, verse 15, things are going to kind of get, get sketchy. There's going to be some hairy circumstances and you're going to think what's going on and, and we'll all cover this. But the Lord's going to say, go, then just go into the land. And Moses is going to say, if your presence doesn't go with us, then we don't want to go. And it's this moment where Moses is saying, you know what? I want your presence. I want to abide with you as you promised to abide with me. And that's what we get to say. I want to abide in Christ as he promises to abide in me. I want to be with him as he promises to be with me. That's the promise of God's presence. That's what's going to bring success in this situation. It's really the best promise that God just says, I will be with you. But, but know that that's, that's what is starting to unfold here. Who am I? You're nobody, but you know who I am. I'm about ready to show you, but I am God and I will be with you. And so I love that God can and he will and he does use us to do some amazing things. A.W. Tozer, he's quoted as saying this, God needs no one, but when faith is present, God works through anyone. And I love that, right? God doesn't need us, but he will choose to use us as we abide with him because he abides with us. That's what we're starting to see with Moses. So who am I is not the question we should be asking. It's who is God? God, who are you? Who do you say you are? What do you say you can do? What are you calling me to do? And that's leading into the second question that Moses is going to to answer. If success on the mission isn't so much dependent upon who I am or who I'm not, but who God is, the question beckons, who is the Lord? So verse 13 says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So Moses, I picture him kind of saying, All right, so you promised to be with me. That's great. That's reassuring. But after I go, what am I supposed to say? What am I going to tell them who sent me? Or question number two is really, who are you again? Remember, God has already told him, he is the God of Abraham, the Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of your fathers. But he's like, who are you again? What is your name? Is what he's asking. 
Tell me your name. You want to get real personal here? You know my name. Hey, what's your name? And I love the question. I want to just talk briefly about the, the circumstances that surround asking the question because I think it's kind of interesting. Moses is doing what sometimes we do and he gets bogged down in what is called the speculative unknown, right? He's coming up with a scenario before the Lord. He's saying, all right, hey, let's just consider this, Lord. When I go to the, the nation of Israel, when I go to talk to them, and I asked them, what if they ask for your name? I better know your name, right? He's playing that situation out. Now, what's interesting, if you read through the narrative, you're going to see they don't ask him that specific question. Then I say, hey, do you know the secret password called the name of the Lord? Because we're not going to believe that you're sent unless you know it. They're not going to ask him that question. They're going to see other proofs. They're going to see other evidence. But what do we really see Moses doing? He's getting worked up frantic about the speculative unknown. He's playing the what if scenario. Does anybody do that? Does anybody kind of think, oh, I got to meet with somebody. I need to connect in some capacity with them. Maybe they've been distant and I'm trying to pursue them and find out why. Maybe I did something foolish and I need to ask for their forgiveness. Whatever the situation is, you're about to approach a conflict with someone and you do not want to get bogged down in the speculative unknown. Now, what I mean by that is, I mean, you, you definitely, we, we need to pray Lord, give me wisdom. God will give wisdom. We need to say, Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. He will give the Holy Spirit to the one who asks. We can even have an idea of what we think we ought to say. God, what do you want me to say? I love to read through my Bible. I'm perusing through. I have a few verses that I think I want to say. But what we don't want to do is go into that web of what are they going to say? Right? If I say this, then they say this, then I better say this, and then if they say this, then I better say this, and it goes on and on and on. You know what happens? You get bogged down in the speculative unknown, and you know what? That question you thought they were going to ask, that you were so prepared to have a response to, they never ask, and you found you just wasted a whole lot of time. Don't do that. Trust the Lord. Be prepared. Have your heart right. He will give you the words to say in the moment. Right? Moses kind of gets bogged down in that area a little bit, but I love that he asks the question. He's like, well, I probably ought to know your name. So he says, what is your name? Who shall I say sent me? And the Lord God is famously going to say in verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now this is incredible text. This is a circler and an underliner and a highlighter. This is such powerful text here. Tune in for this. This is where we get what we call the proper name of God. It's called the tetragrammaton. It is the four letters that identify God's very name. Now what is fascinating about this is we, we don't know exactly how to pronounce it. It's either Yahweh or it's Yehovah. I say either or because we don't know how to pronounce it because all we have are the consonants, the Y-H-W-H. We don't have the vowels. So we don't know how to pronounce the proper name of God. But understand Moses knew because Moses heard the Lord say it. But what happened is over time, the Jewish people, those who are given the oracles of God, they're recording what God is showing them. They're, they're the authors. They're the transcribers of the text. They viewed the name of God so holy, so sacred, they didn't even want to speak it, let alone write it, for fear of using it in vain. 
Right? And so we just kind of lost the actual pronunciation of the name of the Lord. When you see in your Bibles, and I'll point them out as we go through the book of Exodus, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord, that is I am who I am. That is the I am name of the Lord, Jehovah or Yahweh, however however you want to pronounce it. It's an either or. Scholars are debated. They've been debating about that for 3,000 plus years. What is the proper pronunciation of the name of the Lord? But I think, notice, he has many, many titles. The Lord God has many, many titles. But this is his name. That's what he tells Moses. But what does it mean? As we take it this morning and say, well, what does it mean? What does it mean that God is the I am? Well, understand this. It means that God is. To be the I am means that God is. In the standpoint that God is not a was. God is not a will be. God is. He is the I am. It means that he is the all-existing one. He's the self-existing one. He's the one who has always been and will always be the beginning and the end, the first and the last, all at the same time God is. God is the self-sustaining one. He needs no air, no sleep, no food. He needs no one. He needs nothing. In fact, it's the other way around. All things are dependent upon him. We need Him for everything. Everything that has life, everything that has breath, everything that moves, everything that has its purpose, we are all dependent upon Him. God is the I Am. When we think of deep questions that we like to ask and meditate on, upon things like this, like, like who created all that we see and know? Who, who created and hung the stars in the sky? Who made these mountains beautiful? Where does the wind come from? All these different things that we can kind of start to comprehend. We say, who is the creator? God says, I am. We say, who's the one who is currently holding all things together by the power of his word? God steps forward and says, I am. We look and say, who's the one that we can call on and put our faith and hope on and be saved? Jesus steps forward and says, I am. We say, what is the purpose of our lives, the purpose of our existence? God would again say, I am. I am. God is the I am. He's majestic and he's mysterious. He's more than we can fathom. He's more than we can fully understand. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And not just a little bit for you really, really smart people out there. Like so much higher than our thoughts. So much higher than our ways. He's grand. He's infinite. He's outside of time and space. He has no past nor present, but exists in the perpetual state of now. Think about that. God is the I am existing in a perpetual state of now, always. When we think about this, God is, he's not learning something new every day. He already knows everything. God is not perpetually getting better or perpetually getting worse. He's already infinitely perfect and he will be infinitely perfect forever. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the I am. We as created beings, created by him, we will never have him fully figured out. That's the pursuit that we are given. Don't think about God as a book that we can read and once we read it, we put it on the shelf and say, check, I understand who God is. We'll never fully understand who God is. God is not a class that we can take and get a few initials behind our name and say, I've got him figured out, right? This is God that we're talking about. So in addition to all that, when we think about who God is, who he is as the I am, we have a few more things that we can pull out to try and wrap our minds around and get a better definition. But I want to just be very clear. I bet Moses spent the rest of his life trying to understand what this name means. Scholars, Bible scholars have spent 3,000 plus years trying to figure this out. 
But I want us to look at a few verses from Jesus himself. In John's Gospel, I put seven I am statements from Jesus in your study guides. We talked last week about, about Jesus, how Jesus is the only one qualified to tell us who God is. Jesus is the express image of his person. Jesus is the invisible or the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus is able to tell us who God is because Jesus is the word, the word who was with God and was God and the word who came, became flesh and walked among us. Jesus, the one who would say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. So if anyone can tell us who the I am is, it's Jesus. And so look at some of these verses, the seven I am statements from Jesus. He says, I put them all incomplete in your study guide, but just look at these. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Verses that we know are Jesus identifying with the very title that God uses for his own name in Exodus chapter 3 and Jesus defining who God is. God is all these things. We think about it from a physical perspective. We can think about it from an intellectual perspective. And now we can think about it from a spiritual perspective and saying this is who God is. He is the I am. Now, I have two more I want us to look at because that's who God is. Now I want us to see the connection to who Jesus is and how we're talking about the same person here, the one God who manifests himself in three separate persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's some verses Later in John chapter 8, Jesus is in a conversation with some religious leaders. And and that conversation trends towards some heated topic, a little bit of a debate, right? We know Jesus got in plenty of those in the gospel accounts. But these these religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, they're trying to discount Jesus' ministry. They're trying to say, it's not necessary that you tell us all that. They say, because we are children of Abraham. Right? We are already born into the right family line, so we don't need to hear anything that you have to say. And Jesus says, if you were really children of Abraham, then you would not be trying to kill me. Because Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced at it. And they looked at him and said, what? You are not even 50 years old. When did you talk with Abraham? And Jesus boldly says this, John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This here is an absolute, unmistakable proclamation from Jesus about who he is. The I am that we are talking about in Exodus chapter 3. And if you read contextually, John chapter 8, you're going to know the people that he was talking to wanted to stone Jesus for this. They wanted to kill him because they knew exactly what he just said. Jesus just links himself to being the God who manifests himself in in a burning bush, and had the conversation with Moses. So unmistakable proclamation from Jesus. But I'll give you one more. Towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night he's going to be betrayed. He's been praying. He's been crying out to the Lord, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will. Your will be done. And so he's about to be arrested. And remember, temple guards are going to come to arrest him. Roman soldiers are coming to arrest him. And and some of these are battle proven soldiers. They have swords. They have clubs. They've used them before. They've seen a whole lot of crazy things before. And they come up to Jesus and they ask him, or Jesus asks them, whom are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Have you seen him or where is he? And Jesus says this in John 18, 5 and 6, Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. 
Now when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground, John tells us. Now you can see in this scripture here, you can see that the he is in italics, which means it was not originally part of the Greek language of what Jesus said in this phrase. The translators gave us that italic he to say, well, we want you to understand that Jesus is claiming to be Jesus of Nazareth, the one that they're looking for. But it's one of those instances where it's a lot more powerful without it. Sometimes you think you need to add something to give a better understanding. You actually take away the true understanding. But what he's saying is, I am. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? I am is what he says in the Greek. It's ego, I, me. I am. And there's something that happens that is so powerful when Jesus reveals who he really is that these battle-proven soldiers with swords and clubs ready to take Jesus by force all drew back and fell to the ground. That is powerful. But it's the same I am that Moses is having a conversation with in Exodus chapter 3. And we could spend so much more time talking about this because I love this. I love how the Bible teaches us about who God is. One of my favorite topics, probably my most favorite topic, who God is. But we need to move on. But just know that this is who Moses is talking about. This is who God is. We'll come back to this as we close. But when we think of the question, sometimes we get all hung up. But who am I? Seriously, friends, brothers, sisters, that question pales in comparison to who God is. Let your life be lived about who God is, for who God is. Not being bogged down by who I am or who I am not. Let God be our sufficiency. God be our all in all. So God graciously answers Moses' second question. Moses, you tell them I am has sent you. Verse 15 says, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord your God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even, with, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you will not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now in these verses that we just read, I want you to know this is the play-by-play that God just gave Moses. This is kind of like a a summarization of, hey Moses, you wanted to know what you're going to say, you want to know what's going to happen, hey, here it is, right? Verses 15 to 22 is God saying, here is how it's going to go down. 
The play-by-play, the plan, what you're going to do next. You're first going to go meet with the elders of Israel. These heads of families, these leaders in Egypt, but over over these tribes and these, these families within the nation of Israel. And you're going to call them. They're going to come meet with you. You're going to tell them that the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has sent me to you. And now that doesn't mean a lot to us. I think we get it. We're like, all right, this is the same God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the, the God of Jacob. But I want you to try and understand how, how much that would have meant to these Hebrew people who have been in the land of Egypt for over 400 years by now. I want us to remember that it's been centuries since Jacob was alive. It's been a long time since the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has done anything on their behalf. And so they're sitting here thinking, well, we know who he is, but does he still care about us? Does he still want to keep his promises to us? Because so much time has passed. And we get the idea earlier that they have been praying fervently that God would raise up a deliverer for the past 40 years. I don't know how it is for you, but sometimes I pray for, for something, and like after four days, I'm like, God doesn't hear me. Heaven has closed, closed me. Four days. 40 years have gone by, and over 400 years since the Lord has moved on their behalf. Now, it's all been part of God's plan and part of God's purpose. He's incubating them there, but it's hard for us to understand what God is doing in the, in the waiting, isn't it? We trust He is, but it's hard in the moment. But when Abraham, or when, when Moses is sent to tell him, the God of Abraham has heard you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you, I want you to know that it would, it would ring in their ears one of the most beautiful sounds. In verse 15, God says, this is my name forever. I want you to tell them that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still to this day and forever that will be my name. That is an incredible promise that he just gives to his people. And then he's going to tell them, this is what I'm about to do for them. What is going to happen, your deliverance out of Egypt, it will be a memorial to me for all generations. And it has, hasn't it? We are still talking about it today, what God has done as a memorial for his people out out of his mighty outstretched hand, what he's able to do. So that's what we're talking about here. But he says, go tell them this, tell them what's going to happen. Now verse 18 says, you or they will heed your voice. They will listen to you. God is reading into Moses' heart and knowing that he has been rejected by some of them before and feeling like if two rejected me, then they're probably all going to reject me. And God says, no. They will heed you this time. They will receive you, Moses. I am sending you this time. You're not trying to do this in your own strength. It will be successful. But then God, he says, he says here's what you're going to tell Pharaoh. You and all those elders of Israel, you're going to show up to Pharaoh and you're going to tell Pharaoh, hey, let us go out and worship the Lord our God for three days. Now, interesting here is part of the plan. Some people were scratching their heads going, what, what does that mean? Why three days? Right? He's already told us earlier that at the end of this, the sign that God is going to be with his people is he's going to take them all the way to Horeb, to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where he's going to meet with them, and they're going to worship him there. That journey alone is going to take longer than three days. So we're kind of going, what's he talking about three days here? It's kind of confusing here, but what I think is going on here is God is giving Moses the play-by-play, and he's kind of telling Moses, this is about all that you can really understand right? You can't see big picture, so you just be faithful in the little things. You tell him for three days, and you're going to find out that he's not going to grant you even that. Three days is a pretty simple request in comparison to let all my people go forever, right? 
If they're not going to let him go for three days to go worship out in the desert, they're not going to let him go forever. And it's just exposing what God already knows about the hostility of Pharaoh's heart. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And we'll talk about that more in chapters to come. But that's what's just being exposed here. This whole process is going to take longer than he's telling Moses in this quick play-by-play. But it is what is going to happen. It starts with a simple request that Pharaoh's going to deny. Because God knows this. Verse 19 says, I am sure that Pharaoh will not let you go, not even with a mighty hand. This is not going to be something that I want you to go raise up an army and go to try and defeat him. That's not how this is going to go. Even that won't work. It's going to be a work of my spirit. I'm going to deliver my people from the hand of Pharaoh. So he's, he's telling him all this, but I, I want us to know incredible foreshadowing. The Lord says, I'm going to stretch out my hand and show all my wonders to Egypt. But it just, just know that he's telling him beforehand, that part is powerful, beforehand, the providence of God, knowing beforehand what he's going to do even to the extent where he says, and after all of that, you're going to plunder the Egyptians. And when he says that, he's actually taking it all the way back to a promise he made in Genesis chapter 15. I put that verse in your study guide. God tells Abraham, this is crazy, hundreds of years before it ever happens. God tells Abraham, your descendants, remember he hasn't even had a single descendant yet at the time God promises, but your descendants, not only are going to be super numerous, but then they're going to go into a place of bondage for 400 years. God tells them that. They're going to suffer affliction there. He tells them that speaking of this time, but when it's all said and done, they're going to come out of that place with great possessions. That's what God promised, and God keeps his promises. All the promises of God are yes and amen, so he's fulfilling it all and telling Moses, here's what's going to happen. So for all of us, we say, all right, we've worked out. It's not about who I am. It's about who God is. God is with me. And now we know who God is. God is the I am. And now he's just giving me the whole play-by-play. Now is it enough? All right, cool. Now let's go to Egypt, right? Is that enough? No. Moses still has three more questions he's going to ask the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. Then he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it. And it became a rod in his hand that they may believe the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Furthermore, the God, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom, put it in your robe. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. And so he withdrew, he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river, pour it on dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on dry land. So Moses asks question number three, Lord, what if they don't believe me? We ever thought about that question, but what if... They just don't receive what I have to say. And I want you to understand, here's where the reluctance, this beautiful reluctance, starts to get questionable in Moses' heart and his posture before the Lord. Because chapter 3, verse 18, God already told him, they will heed you, Moses. They will receive from you. 
But he's saying, but what if they don't, right? You're questioning the Lord. But God in his incredible grace, his patience, his long-suffering with us, with Moses here, he's going to answer this question too. And he's going to grant Moses some special signs to affirm and authenticate the message that God has sent him, the message that God wants him to bring. And I want us to understand how practical this is for all of us. We just finished the book of Acts and we watched that God does the same thing for us. That God, he, he brings the power of His Holy Spirit. We see there's signs and wonders sometimes, but what are they all for? They're to affirm and authenticate the message. To show that this is the message that God has wanted to bring to His people, and this is what He wants you to receive. So that's what He's doing here for Moses. But it's not always going to look like we think it's going to look. Right? God is kind of setting Moses up in a way to say, Moses, this is not going to be easy. He hasn't told him specifically there's going to be 10 plagues. It's going to take some serious time. The people are not going to like you. Even the people you're trying to deliver are not going to like you early on. It's going to be hard. But I want you to know, this is the affirmation for my people. And in a lot of regards, this is the affirmation for you too, Moses, that I have sent you. So he gives him three signs. The first one is, is with the rod. He says, what is that in your hand? And Moses is like, what's well, it? It's shepherd's staff, Lord. And again, the Lord knows what it is. But he says, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground. And now hilariously, Moses sees it turns into a snake and Moses fled from it, it says. I picture Moses running off. Remember we talked about, he doesn't, he doesn't have his shoes on. So we didn't step on anything sharp, but he's running from this snake. Now some of you are saying, why would he run from it? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't like snakes at all. There's a good chance that that shepherd's rod is five to six feet tall. You throw that down and it becomes a snake, perhaps a vicious cobra. I'm not hanging out saying, oh, Lord, what a cool work. I'm saying, get me out of here. That's a snake. Then the Lord says, come back. And I picture, we, we don't have the dialogue. The Lord's saying, come, Moses, Moses, come back, perhaps. Then he says, pick it up by the tail. The only way you'd ever pick up a snake by the tail is if you were really, really sure God told you to do that. That's not how you pick up a snake, right? They're all muscle. You grab it by the tail, it's going to whip around and strike you. But Moses obeys the Lord. He picks it up by the tail and it turns back into a rod, a shepherd's rod again. But there's something deeper about what is going on here. This rod could have turned into anything if God wanted it to. It could have budded like Aaron's going to do later. But it turns into a snake and, and perhaps a cobra because it's symbolic of what is going to happen to Egypt. This idea of a cobra, this image of a cobra, it's all over the, the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh would have worn an image, a headdress of a cobra on his very head. So it's more likely the Lord is saying, Moses, I want you to know I have authority over Egypt. I have authority over all the lowercase g, not really gods, of Egypt. You can turn your, your, your rod into one of their so-called deity and pick it up by the tail, right? It'd be like a modern day to say, God's saying, hey, you, go catch a tiger by his, by his toe, right? And you can catch a tiger by his toe, you, God's with you, right? Don't try that. I'm not saying you should try that. But it's kind of like that idea. You're like, whoa, that's, that's big time. But it shows that God is with him. God has authority over Egypt. And he's going to be able to show all his, all his people, all the nation of Israel, that he has authority over Egypt. But that's not only it. He also has authority over leprosy, an incurable disease in this day, still today. But they didn't even have anything to try and stop the progression of it like we do today. Picture putting your hand inside your robe and pulling it out, and it's white as snow, leprous. That would have freaked a lot of people out. Quite the sleight of hand trick from the Lord to Moses. And then the last one is to be able to take a cup of water or a vessel of water out of the Nile River and dump it out on dry ground and have it be blood. Death. And we're going to see God is going to use all those things to affirm his presence with Moses. But I, I want us to just, again, think about this practically. What God is saying is, Moses, you just be obedient to me. 
you just being, be naturally who you are, led by my spirit, but I'm going to add the supernatural to your life. I'm going to do what I can do, what I only I can do to make your ministry successful. That's what God does. We'll talk more about that as we close as well. Let's keep working through the text. Verse 10 says, Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who makes man's mouth or makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you should say. So after these three signs, you're thinking, well, is this enough? I mean, come on, Moses. How, how, many, how many more questions are you going to ask, right? It's amazing. I'm kind of losing my patience with Moses by this time. But isn't it amazing? God isn't yet, right? Yet. But I just want you to know that God is okay with our questions to a point, right? And I think the question perhaps is going to change. I think God is always okay with our questions, But I think there comes a point where if you're questioning God himself, that's where it becomes a a problem. But here he is, he he says, question number four, what if I can't do it right? What if if I just can't do it the way I'm supposed to do it? Moses says, Lord, I just don't speak eloquent enough. I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. How many people fall into that one? What if I just can't do it right? I get what God's calling me to do, but what if I just can't? Moses is coming up with some, some more excuses. Well, I just don't speak eloquent, he says. I'm slow of speech. I'm, I'm slow of tongue. And there's a lot of speculation about what he may be meaning here. Some have gone on to say, well, maybe he has a speech impediment. Maybe he stutters or he stammers. Maybe he gets tongue twied. Do you see that happen? That happened last time too. Tongue twied. I didn't do that on purpose. That happens, right? Tongue twied. But, but here's what goes on. Some of these times this thing takes place and, and that's what's kind of, that's his fear. I don't like to public speak maybe. I don't know if any of those are the real reasons because we were told earlier in Acts chapter 7 that Moses was mighty in word and in deed when he was earlier in Egypt. So I don't don't think you just all of a sudden develop a speech impediment. Again, maybe, maybe. I'm not saying for sure no. But I I think that's a a weak possibility. But I think there's another possibility that he's been in the deserts of Midian for 40 years. Maybe his Egypt, linguistically speaking, the language of the Egyptians has gone away. It's not as good as it once was. Whatever the case may be, he's trying to present this before the Lord, saying, God, what about my mouth? What if I can't speak right? And I think about the Lord kind of looking at this situation and and maybe stepping back and saying, wow, Moses, it sure seemed like you've had no problems coming up with questions right off the cuff every single time I tell you to go, right? You're kind of having a good time talking to me here, right? You're talking to the Lord. You're probably going to be able to talk to Pharaoh just fine. But on the other side of things, it's maybe, maybe he's saying, God, you don't know, you don't know who I am. You, you don't know what I struggle with. God, you don't know my capability. You don't know. Can you imagine telling the Lord that? Well, God, you don't know. You know we just talked about the Lord is the I am. But I think the Lord is kind of, he's going to answer and say, Moses, who made man's mouth? God, I, I, I made your mouth, the Lord is going to say. Moses, I really know what you bring to the table. Moses, I know what I'm getting when I get you. I know what you're able to offer here. God isn't like, oh, you don't speak well? Well, I need to take up, I need to take up someone in the HR department because that was not in your personnel file that you didn't have the capacity to speak well. Somebody made a mistake, right? Never has happened with God. God does not make mistakes. 
He knows what is going on here. So he says, I know who you are, Moses. I know what you can and you can't do. I know what I'm getting when I get you. And in fact, your very weakness is going to be what I can use for my strength. Your inability is the very area where I'm going to be able to show myself strong on your behalf. And that is a beautiful promise because he's going to say, you may be mute, you may be deaf, you may be blind, but God can still use you mightily for his glory. What we take as disadvantages from our perspective, God looks at them and says, that's an advantage from my perspective because I can use that and get all the glory. That's what he's telling Moses. So we can take it honestly and say, Moses really believes he has a perceived weakness here. And God really knows it and can use him there anyway. So even that is not a valid excuse. God tells him to go, I will be with your mouth. I will teach you the words that you should say. I will give you the words to speak in the moment. I've already told you this, Moses, I'll be with you. So we're thinking, all right, is this now enough? And we say, no, not yet. Moses has one more question. Verse 13 says, But Moses said, O my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the messenger of the Lord was, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people and he himself shall be as a mouth for you and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. So question number five here in this dialogue with God, this Q&A with God Moses says, what if I just don't want to do it? What if I just don't want to go, Lord? It's crazy, but he says, oh my Lord, please send somebody else. And when you think about that statement, it's like when Peter would say, oh, not so Lord, right? It's those contradictions that are in the very statement. You can't say, Lord, I want to do things my own way, because that is saying, Lord, I'm really Lord, is what you're saying. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord. And we say, yes, Lord. But but he's ultimately saying, Lord, what if I just don't want to go? And we're going to see this kindles the anger of the Lord because this here is now brought to the point of disobedience. Moses has no other real questions to ask. I think God would have been gracious to answer a few more questions. But the point comes, Lord, I just don't want to do it. And that becomes a point of disobedience because God is calling him to do something. Now, I think that God audibles here. I think this is one of those moments where we see God's perfect will and God's permissive will right here in the text. God's permissive will being that which God allows to happen. God in his sovereignty has given man responsibility to decide. And so here we got, we've got verses 15 through 22 that is absolutely God's plan. Here's the plan that's going to happen before it happens and he lays it out. But there's no Aaron mentioned in that situation. Because Aaron wasn't a part of the plan. But here he wants to use Moses. He's been trying to raise up Moses. But Moses, I'm not going. I'm not going to go by myself. So the Lord says, fine, then I'll bring Aaron alongside you. And he audibles here. But it wasn't initially part of God's plan. And there's going to be some consequences that result. Like that whole golden calf worship incident and a bunch of people dying. That wasn't part of the plan. Yeah, that was Aaron being brought into the situation. Not saying Moses hasn't made some mistakes or wouldn't make some mistakes. But he wasn't a part of the original plan. 
This is kind of how it works sometimes when, when we step in faith or we choose to kind of compromise in some of these areas. God is going to still use this and he's still going to be glorified through it, but it kind of starts to complicate some things simply because of Moses' unwillingness to be obedient. This beautiful reluctance now coming very questionable. So God sets it up. All right, Aaron's going to come out to meet you. And, and it kind of looks like this is going to happen out here in the desert of Midian when he says this here in verse 14. But we're actually going to see it next week when he's, he's left Midian. He's almost to Egypt. And then God's going to move in Aaron's heart. And we'll see him meet Moses. But then what ultimately is going to happen is Moses is going to hear from the Lord. And then Moses is going to tell Aaron what he's supposed to say. And Aaron's going to be the spokesman to the people. Now, I don't know. I'm still wait, waiting to decide. I don't know if that's always the situation every single time that we see this. I think there, that Moses is also going to be speaking there too. He's certainly wielding the rod of God. But we'll kind of keep that out there as we get deeper into the book of Exodus and kind of see what happens. But now, finally, after all this, with Aaron coming alongside him, Moses is ready to go. So Moses went, verse 18, and we'll pick up the rest Later, But you can read ahead and kind of see this. But as we try to wrap this up, we're kind of looking at this saying, what does this have to do with us? You know, we kind of read this whole text and we're like, it's kind of cool. I kind of like it. I love the answers God gives. But man, what's going on? Like this, I don't know that I want to be like Moses in all instances. Am I the only one who kind of feels that way? I kind of step back like, I don't know. I, I certainly see some great similarities. But I've tried to bring it back to say, what do we do with all this? There's some reluctance that is good, and there's some reluctance that is, is not so good. Some beautiful, some not. So let's look back at these five questions again. The first one saying, who am I? I think this question is always a beautiful question. I think that us understanding that we're the smallest part of any equation that involves God is always a good thing. I think we always need to be mindful to not think of ourselves greater than we ought. I think who am I is a good thing. I think me always realizing, you always realizing that God does beautiful things from the dust of my life, that's a beautiful thing. God deserves all the glory. God deserves all the praise. The only thing good in me is Christ Jesus, my hope for glory. The who am I part, I think that is beautiful. I think that is just an absolute right heart to have. And I want to encourage you to have that. But the question number two, who are you Who are you, God? What is your name? What is the definition of your character? What have you done? What do you promise you will still still do? Kind of putting our pursuit after that, really trying to understand who God is, the great I am, that God is everything I need, that God has actually provided all things that pertain to life and godliness for me in my life. That's a great thing too. To constantly ask, I know who I am in in the equation. I'm the nobody, but who is God? God is everything. God is everything I need exceedingly above all I can ask or imagine. God is the one in whom I can do all things. God is the one that if I abide, nothing is impossible. God is the one that I absolutely want to keep my eyes focused upon every single step of the day, every single step of my pursuit. What we believe about God really is the most important thing we have in our lives. It starts to direct everything that we do. What we really believe is how we really act. And how we believe, what we believe about God is really going to determine every single thing we do. And He is the I Am. So I love that question too. But getting even maybe some more practical here, what if they don't believe me? What if, okay, God's called me to do this and I want to step out. What if they don't believe me? Friends, I want you to hear this. The fruit belongs to the Lord. 
In every situation, the fruit belongs to the Lord. Only God can grow the seed. We can sow the seed, we can water the seed, but only God can grow the seed, which means the fruit always belongs to the Lord. Or said another way, the results are the Lord's. Our job is to be obedient. The results belong to the Lord. I want you to say that with me. The results belong to the Lord. Who, who gets the results, right? Who, the Lord, right? The Lord gets the results. But why that's important is because if they don't believe me, if they don't believe you, whose problem is it? It's God's problem, right? And he can handle it. Don't get bogged down with the, what if they're not going to believe me? What if they're not going to believe me? I love that, that Paul quoting Isaiah. He says, beautiful are the feet of those who share the gospel of peace. Right? He doesn't say beautiful are the feet of those who are used by God and then they receive, the others who they share with receive. The results belong to the Lord. Just be obedient. Be faithful. Let God take care of the rest. That's his job. That's what he's going to do and he can handle a lot better than weakness. He brings conviction to the spirit and, and, and verifies, confirms the truth. So don't get bogged down with that question. Question four is, what if I can't do it right? How important is that? What if I'm not eloquent enough? What if I can't speak the right words? I want you to know that that who you've been called to be, who you've been created to be, the task that God wants to use you in, I believe it's perfectly tailored for you to do it in the strength and supply of the Lord. Your very weakness for the task that is before you is where God is going to show his sufficient grace and his strength be made perfect, right? So the very thing, you're very reluctant saying, what if I'm not eloquent enough? That's the very area where you can trust the Lord and watch him fill that gap and be glorified through it. So again, don't get bogged down with that question. What if I'm not eloquent enough? Your perceived weakness is the very area that God wants to be used to be strong. He'll show you. Question number five is, what if I just don't want to do it? And that's the real question of questions. That's the the serious question here. Moses essentially is saying, here I am, Lord, send somebody else. You know, unlike Isaiah, unlike Abraham, unlike Samuel, unlike who we want to be. When God calls, we're like, God, that's great. Send somebody else. We say, Lord, here I am, send me. Equip me. Fill me. Go with me. I want to go with you. Moses, we're going to see the whole, his whole life is going to, it's going to change on this moment of obedience. And we're going to see that God is going to use him in incredible ways and, and really fulfill all of these desires. But it certainly starts with him stepping out of his comfort zone. It's, it starts with him leaving the comforts of Midian and shepherding his father-in-law's sheep and going back to Egypt, a place that wasn't his most victorious moment. But God is going to use it, and that's what he's calling him to do. So if the Lord has called you to do something, and you've, you've heard from the Lord, you know it's from the Lord. He's confirmed it in his word. You've met with some godly counsel, and you know this is what God is calling me to do. Then, friends, the, the, the only thing that really remains is you being obedient. It's you being obedient. It's you saying, Lord, I'm going to trust you and obey. You are the great I am, and I am called to follow you. I want to pick up my cross, deny myself, and follow you, Jesus. The old hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that's where we have, sometimes that's just where it just camps out. And so I don't know where you're all at this morning, but it's unmistakable when Moses asks this question that it kindles the anger of the Lord. Reluctance is beautiful, but disobedience is not. God's love language is obedience. When he says, those who love me obey my commands, there comes a crossroads in all of our lives where we say, God, what are you calling me to do? What are you calling me to stop doing? 
your Lord and I want to trust and obey. So if you find yourself in that crossroads, I want you to look at the life of Moses and I want you to see what God is able to do through his obedience and I want you to know God being the same yesterday, today, and forever, he can do that in your life the same way. Trust and obey. Amen? Let's call the worship team back up. Let's sing a couple songs as we close out. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I I know that this is hard. I know that there's been things that you've called me to do or things that you've called me to stop doing or things that you've called me to trust you in that, God, it goes way beyond what I'm capable of doing. And that makes it hard, God. That makes it feel like I'm having to step out in the unknown. And, And Father, that's just exactly what you call us to do sometimes. To walk by faith and not by sight. To step out following you to a place that we may not even know where we're going like Abraham. But God, I know that you're there. I know that you've been there for me time and time again. I know that you will never leave me nor forsake me. I know that just like with Moses, you've promised your presence. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. If if there's some here that are, God, they're feeling you call or they're feeling you you stretch or they're feeling you reach for more in them, God, I pray that, that it would be exciting. That the God of the universe, the great I am, the one who's created me and redeemed me, brought me into fellowship with him. He's, he's wanting to use me to be about his work, his mission. And Father, I just pray for faith. I pray that you'd help our unbelief. One of the most honest prayers we can pray is, Father, help my unbelief. Help our unbelief. Help our areas where we feel weak. Help us trust you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to be able to bridge the gap of the areas of our inefficiencies and our inadequacies to your absolute abundance. Do that work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.